always a blessing. Well, we are continuing our study of Second Peter, where in them fighting words at the end of the second and the beginning of the third chapter, considering tonight dogs, pigs, and antinomians. I had an even saucier title, but it uh, sounded a little gross, so I decided to go with that instead. So anyway, all right. Let's uh, pick up at the end of chapter 2. Peter is warning us about the uh, false teachers and here their end. So let's give attention to the word of the Lord. Uh, Picking up in verse 18 for context. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. The ones who actually have escaped from those who live in error While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into bondage. For, passage for today, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow being washed to her wallowing in the mire. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in these last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they willfully forget this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then, as it existed, perished, being flooded with water. We'll we'll leave there. Let's pray together once more. Uh, Our Father in heaven, uh, such strong and fearful warnings, uh, surely we long to see your church freed from such a scourge. We pray that you would protect this congregation, those whom we love, from the uh, terrible effects of the wicked teachers. And so we pray that the Church of Christ might again be purified in our day. Not only we pray for revival, but for a thoroughgoing reformation that that we might again uh, rejoice in the purity of the truth that leads to godliness through Christ our Lord. Amen. During the Spanish Civil War, there was a royalist general who was making his way at the head of an army to a city, and a reporter stopped him and asked him just uh, how many columns of soldiers he had. He said, five. I have four at my back, and I have a fifth column inside the walls. Ever since, that term, fifth column, has been used to describe traitors, those inside who are, in fact, helping the enemy. 
Peter warns in this uh, section about the church's fifth column, about those teachers, those insiders, who are in fact leading the church astray and its members into perdition. These insiders who have known the truth and yet turned against it. Uh, We think about this happening time and time again in history. We've already sung about Judas tonight, and there have been many, many Judases since. I was thinking this week about one of the men of the Westminster Assembly in 1643, one of those five delegates from Scotland that came with Alexander Henderson and George Gillespie and Samuel Rutherford, uh, an elder and a nobleman chosen among all the people of the nation to advance that Reformation, a man named John Maitland, who is better known perhaps by his uh, title, as that was the custom, the Earl of Lauderdale. As a young man, he was recognized as one of the most able and zealous defenders of the Reformation in Scotland. And so it was only to be expected that he would be chosen to represent the church at that assembly. And what's more, during the years of the bitter persecution that was suffered by the church in Scotland, Maitland went to prison several times for his convictions, bold and unashamed. And in prison, he wrote letters full of courage and full of faith and full of joy that he was suffering indeed for the sake and for the name and cause of Christ. Why, he spent his time in prison mastering more completely the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, that's a man. All right. But something happened after Charles II was uh, restored to the throne. In, in 1661, I don't know what to say, but um, the Earl of Lauderdale uh, switched sides He became an ardent royalist and uh, supporter of the king's claim to be head of the church. He betrayed the Solemn League and Covenant, and he set about undoing all the work of the Reformation that he had done. And to the shock and dismay of his friends, it was like he had never been uh, on their side. He became one of the king's most influential advisors. He became certainly one of the most powerful men, one of the two most powerful men in Scotland, no doubt, And he began to live a life of drunkenness and profane humor and of sarcastic and mean-spirited ridicule of the covenanted ministers with whom he had formerly suffered, all while still professing himself to be a devoted churchman. It was just such a catastrophe. And his his old friends and colleagues uh, with anguish wrote to him. Uh, Richard Baxter uh, pleaded with him to return to his former faithfulness to Christ and to Christ's cause but it was to no avail. And at last, he became the great persecutor of the Covenanters. The Earl of Lauderdale was the chief one to send the troops and hunt them down, to cut them down in the fields, to send them to the gallows. And it was the same John Maitland, Earl of Lauderdale, former Westminster Assembly member, former prisoner for Christ, who bought the Bass Rock, that uh, outcropping in the in the Firth, that bleak and cheerless small rock of an island northeast of Edinburgh, and turned it into the infamous prison where so many of his former colleagues died. And there he sent the most eminent ministers of Scotland, some of the finest men of God of any age, to die a very miserable and tortured death. So one historian describes Lauderdale as the Judas of the Covenant. 
This is just one story among so many. And we think, how could it happen? How did it happen that such a warm, gracious, devoted, serious follower of Christ, who'd even been willing to suffer to the great extremes for him, one of a handful of leading men for Christ in the world of that day, that he should become and remain ardently till his death, one of his bitterest enemies, though still nominally inside the church. How could such a complete reversal of mind and heart take place? Well, I don't know. But Peter describes it here. Indeed, one commentary calls this section of Scripture vomiting dogs and wallowing hogs. I thought that would be a fun sermon title, but... I thought it was probably too repulsive for you, so I picked something a little better, dogs, pigs, and antinomians. But Peter clearly wants us to be repulsed, to be repulsed at the kind of description that he had just written to us, to feel repulsed when we see the enemies of Christ doing an about-face and working in the church with might and main to destroy God's holy people. We're going to be considering several aspects of betrayal from this section. Betrayal described, betrayal predicted, betrayal explained, and at last, betrayal condemned. And I'm going to be working backward through the passage because I hope it'll be clearer to you that way as uh, we uh, go from the end to the beginning. Uh, Let's start with betrayal described as we uh, learn some of their teaching. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, we already learned about uh, their low morals, but here we read about scoffers coming in the last day, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers all fell asleep, things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Here is a brief description of their false teaching. As one writer summarizes, Peter faced a curiously modern predicament. There were people in the church who were living sensual lives and justifying it, and that infection was spreading. They did not believe in the notion of judgment, and they laughed at the second coming. Here's the church's fifth column, busy at work, betraying the holy city of God. Betrayal described. But as that writer said, it's also a very modern predicament. Uh, Poll after poll report things like this. No observable difference between the moral behavior of professing Christians in the rest of America. Barna, Gallup say such things. Surveys reveal a nation where most claim to be religious, but few take their faith seriously, said one Newsweek article. After one major survey, George Barna concludes, every day the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. And reports like this reveal a very deep-seated problem in the church, a problem that has existed since the days of the apostles. It has been called different things, in different times. In Geneva, it was called the Libertine Doctrine. It was Luther who coined the most common term used today, antinomian. Anti meaning against, and namos, the word for law, being, as it were, against the law of God. Not against the grace of God, 
but against any holy requirement of the law or the holy commandment, the way of righteousness, as Peter describes it. Luther's early friend and fellow reformer, Johannes Agricola, taught this in Germany and led many people astray and was a matter of great shame to the cause of Reformation. It's happened in every age. J.I. Packer has identified no less than five different ways in which we've been affected by this in more modern times. Now in the church, some have a more feeling-based approach to Christianity and say that, you know, what God really requires of Christian is love in the most squishy and nonspecific way, right? Some take the spirit-based approach and say, well, the spirit is leading us as Christians, and therefore we're not under the law. We've had the dispensational approach, which taught the carnal Christian doctrine to us that, uh, you know, you could have Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. There was a kind of easy believism in the evangelical church from the beginning where people were stressing liberty and grace and forgiveness, uh, no matter how wicked the people. So like the old poet Heinrich Heine said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. And so this corrupt teaching, this uh, turning the grace of God into a license for immorality is not new, but it is very discouraging. It is a terrible development for the church, vomiting dogs and wallowing hogs, leading many astray in the church, betrayal described. We know, of course, from the gospel that the very same God who sent Christ for our forgiveness sent also his spirit to lead us in holiness. And these are constantly put together in the promises of the new covenant, in the writings of the apostles, the same God that justifies us through his son, so sanctifies us by his spirit. Romans 8, for example, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so artlessly, time and again, we are remembered that not only does he do our sins and lawless deeds he remembers no more, but also he puts in within us a new heart and a new spirit within us to cause us to keep his statutes. And people that seek to divide those things of the new covenant seek to destroy God's people in immorality. Betrayal described. We also have in the passage betrayal predicted. Going back a few verses, Peter says twice here, I'm writing to remind you of these things, things that you already know, but you're going to have a tendency to forget when they start to happen in the church. But, uh, for example, here in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets. I'm pretty sure he means uh, the, we might say, the Old Testament prophets, as he's referred to them before. The, The things which they warned would happen and also the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. He gave us similar warnings before. In fact, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 1, it was almost the first thing that he said in this section. There were first false prophets among the people. <clears throat> Even so, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So, 
Peter's saying, look, I'm, I'm writing to remind you so that this doesn't take you by surprise. He doesn't say, well, what's happening to the church of God? What's going wrong with it today? Something is, something is happening that we, we didn't expect. Oh, no, the Lord himself had spoken such things. In fact, the Lord was secretly betrayed by one of his own followers. Is it so out of the question that the church should constantly be facing the Judases inside? Here's one of the Lord's own number who betrays and works against him. The Psalms of Christ's passion, as we just sang from 69 and other places, are full of such betrayal. Why should anyone be surprised that we should have such problems today? Peter begins by reminding him, this shouldn't shake you. It's it's, it's disturbing. It's awful. But it shouldn't be surprising. Hasn't it always been this way? Isn't this what we said would happen? Is this not what the prophet said what would come to pass? To find such wickedness among the people of God, hardly a surprise. Well, in the same way, betrayal may shake us when it happens, but it should hardly surprise us. It's spoken of again and again. I'll just pick one passage from 1 Timothy 4, where we read that the Spirit expressly says in later times, uh, that is in the... uh, Uh, time of Messiah here, our our time, these last days, that some will depart from the faith, uh, not to become non-Christians, you you see, but hold on, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, For every creature of God is good, and nothing's to be refused if received with thanksgiving and sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Christ. You have to tell them that in these last days, wicked people will come. They're still in the church, but they have given heed to doctrines of demons, and they have all these uh, uh, things for Lent, right, that are going to help you. Oh, sorry on my soapbox. They have all these uh, ways in which you could deny yourself for your own holiness, right? And uh, these, these things which God has created to be received with thanksgiving. And uh, the, these things are, are going to be of no value against the flesh, these traditions of men. But uh, these things are to come. They must come. And many will be led astray. And so in these and many more passages, we're reminded that Just as it happened to Jesus, so it will continue to happen in his body, the church. The cause of Christ must advance with traitors in its midst. The army of the Lord will always be beset by a fifth column within. And so this battle of the kingdom of darkness is going to be made so much more difficult by the devil's allies hiding within the Lord's ranks. And so perhaps some of our dearest friends, apparently so faithful, who have served the Lord and walked with us, who have suffered with us, will depart and become enemies both to us and to all we hold dear. This will greatly disappoint you and shake you, but it must not despise you, uh, excuse me, must not surprise you, for the Lord has told you in advance, betrayal has been predicted. Well, it's not only explained and are described and, uh, and predicted, It's explained here uh, at the end of chapter 2. 
This is, this, this is what's happened to such people. It's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Betrayal explained. The Bible's teaching on the perseverance and the preservation of the saints is one of the most glorious truths in the Bible, so dear to us. One of the things that distinguishes Christianity, surely, from every works-based religion in the world. For nobody who denies this doctrine has any assurance of eternal life. We glory in this assurance that we are able to have because we are secure in the Lord and that none can snatch us out of His hand. So, how can we possibly understand that there are those who, in verse 20, have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but are again entangled in them and overcome. Some people have looked at this passage and say, well, have they lost their salvation? Well, it's very clearly explained here, I believe, that uh, what, happened, what has happened in fact is that their nature has never actually changed, only their appearance and actions, you notice. Like pigs that were washed, well, they look quite different on the outside, and yet the nature on the inside has not been changed. And they, you know, pigs just can't resist the mud puddle, right? They must go back to wallow in the mud, and so they do. A dog may indeed leave behind its vomit, but if you've ever had a dog, you know this disgusting trait of theirs. It's their instinct to go back and enjoy it for dessert. Uh, in both cases, they have left something behind, it's true. But because their nature has never changed, they are compelled by their nature to go back. And so it is clear from this whole chapter that the nature has remained un unchanged within, for example, verse 12 of chapter 2, they are as natural brute beasts made to be destroyed and will utterly perish in their own corruption. This is their nature. These people that had escaped the defilements of the world, they, they have gone a long way. They knew Jesus to be Savior and Lord. They knew the way of righteousness. They had received God's commandments. I mean, think about Judas, right? I mean, he, he's a preacher of the Lord from city to city. He does miracles. Uh, it's astonishing how far some people can go. But their nature, being unchanged, they cannot maintain that outward state forever. And so, ultimately, they are compelled to return to live according to their uncleanness. And so, Peter explains what's going on. Not that there's been some loss of salvation, but there has been a return to one's natural desires that had never been changed. So, we have uh, this uh, betrayal described, we've had it predicted, we've had it explained, and finally we have it condemned in some particularly frightening words in uh, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, how their latter end is worse for them at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Well, what can we say about people who have left the way of Christ? Well, we've said that they've never been born again. Well, that's true. You can't lose eternal life. But these people are in a far worse position than others who had never been born again. These who had known the Lord, who had known the truth. Um, I mean, Judas, when he was betraying Jesus, it, 
it wasn't because he didn't know who Jesus was. Uh, he knew perfectly well what he was doing. And this is the great wickedness. This is the wickedness of those cities that we read about earlier, Tyre and, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida uh, and Capernaum, these cities that had not only heard the Lord's teaching, that had seen his mighty works. They had no excuse. They knew, and still they would not repent. And he says, it's going to be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and what did I say? Capernaum, right? Okay. So uh, the worst sins are committed in the church to know what you are doing and whom you are opposing and to do it anyway is a particularly wicked thing. Hebrews chapter 10 explains it this way. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But of how much worse punishment do you suppose he'll be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, there are people who are his people, who have been sanctified by that blood of the covenant, whom the Lord will judge and who can expect a fiery indignation on that day having committed far greater sins than others because they have knowingly and willingly trampled the Son of God as it were underfoot, uh, despising the spirit of grace and becoming new covenant breakers. And so, Peter warns, their last state is worse than their first. And this is why Peter uses really such, you might say, over-the-top language, right? Why does he speak this way? Uh, because uh, these are the chiefest of, chiefest of sins. Well, what can we say about these things then? I just have two points of brief application and we'll conclude. Such betrayal of Christ is inevitable, for we cannot read the heart or avoid the problem. Such betrayal of Christ is inevitable, for we cannot read the heart or avoid the problem. We've already said the Lord was betrayed by one of his own and so it will be that we will share in those sufferings, even from within the camp. We are obviously alarmed. We are shaken when someone we know departs from the Lord. We sometimes think, oh, if we only had done a better job as parents or as elders or as a church, then we could have avoided that problem. But that is not the case. Jesus explains the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He says, this is what it's like. It's like a man who goes out and sows seed and falls on all kinds of ground, on hard path or shallow soil or weeds or sometimes good soil. And you remember what happens. Uh, nothing comes of the first. The, the second is uh, springing right up, but then it's scorched because it doesn't have any root. The third is choked by the weeds and uh, brings nothing to uh, fruition 
as the cares of the world do to some of Christ's professing followers. But then there's that good soil that bears the fruit. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. This is the nature of the kingdom. You cannot change the nature of the kingdom. Not all Israel are Israel. And we are to remember that the Lord has prepared us. When they go out, as those disciples were being sent to spread the word, and they were to see these things happening, they were to know that the Lord had warned them of it. And the church, therefore, must be still prepared to this day. Judas looked and sounded and acted the same as the rest of the twelve, though he was not the same. And if the rest of those disciples with him day in, day out, did not detect Judas as even a likely traitor after three years of intimate fellowship, it is certain that you and I will not be able to detect those in our midst who might do such a thing. The Apostle Paul thought Demas his loyal partner in the gospel work until the day that for the love of the world, he deserted him. Turncoats will be identified when they turn. The church is now, as it has always been, a mixed company composed of both genuine believers and what the old Puritans used to call temporaries. We can't read the hearts of others. We can't avoid the problem. We, we want to hear a solid profession of faith. We, we want to encourage people. And yet there's one thing that we cannot do we cannot avoid the problem by trying to have uh, you know, only, the, only the fourth kind of soil in the church. Such betrayal is inevitable. We can't read the heart. We can't avoid the problem. But this we certainly can do, you and I. Second point of application. Let us each take heed for one, for each other, lest we fall. We can deal closely and honestly with our own hearts and with each other. And this warning should cause us each to shudder at the thought that anyone whom we know and love would ever follow such men to their destruction. And so let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to heed this warning as it is given at some length with these vivid reminders that we must not forget. You'll probably know Robert Louis Stevenson's tale, the strange tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Dr. Jekyll was a wealthy doctor who from time to time would commit indecent acts of which he was thoroughly ashamed. But as he reflected on his life, um, the public life, upright and uh, respected, the other life shameful and secret, in the story, he began to experiment with a certain chemical combination to see if he could isolate those two parts of his mind and create something that would allow him to indulge in those most hideous and base activities without the uh, anxiousness of conscience. And so he created a potion that did transform him into a repulsive man who expressed that pure evil that existed within him. And then afterward, he could drink the same potion and reverse the effect and transform himself back to his original self. And he could do that whenever he liked. He could enjoy expressing his depravity one day without shame and then change back and enjoy a moral and upright life. Day in, day out, the private shame uh, eliminated, the, 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 the public virtue extolled. But then one day... One sunny day, sitting in Regent's Park, the doctor, having taken no potion, suddenly suddenly was transformed into Mr. Hyde. 
and he sought the help of another doctor, but the potion wasn't effective any longer. Previously, he could do it whenever he wished. He could go back and forth and return to his normal life, and eventually, you see, he became that monster. And in the end, Mr. Edward Hyde actually committed suicide, despising, excuse me, despairing of ever changing back from the evil creature he'd become. It is a hideous story that Judas uh, warns us against and all those who are like him. There is something that we can all see continually around us at work. Sin is that potion, if you like, that fascinates us, that changes us as we indulge in it from the upright people that we would like to be seen to be into monsters of iniquity and believing that sin is something that is completely under our control, that we can indulge in it and then return any time we like, that we are in the masters of our destiny until, of course, the terrible truth sets in that sin will not be a servant and that sin will be the master. And after a while, the master will command complete obedience until the Lord is betrayed with a kiss. This is how it happens, and I think there's little doubt that this is what Stevenson was writing when he was giving that novel. He was giving a warning, a warning that Peter also is giving to the church here. Do not follow their wicked ways. No Christian, however strong, however faithful, will at last be able to bring himself or herself to the heavenly country We all feel that same weakness and that temptation within. In fact, we have succumbed thousands of times to sins and our overweening pride, which seeks to minimize them. We are always overestimating ourselves and underestimating our sins. And so, Jesus says, we must humble ourselves and abide in Him. Let Him lead us in the way everlasting. We do not have that power within ourselves. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you desire and it will be done for you. And by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you.